Many of us go through life without purpose, without knowing the power of writing your own story. Canadian community educator and Voices of Muslim Women Foundation charity founder, Aisha Miji brings you the Legacy Brunch Club podcast, where you'll hear from humans around the globe dedicated to serving their communities and legacy building. You'll learn the daily habits and principles that ground them and push them towards being their best self. Listen to stories from people around the world who are driven to create and leave their unique legacies. Eat, do good, have great conversations. Legacy Brunch Club podcast is brought to you by LegacyBrunchClub.com, a global brunch club for humans creating legacies. Go online to LegacyBrunchClub.com to choose a brunch, donate to a cause, and have an extraordinary life-changing conversation with humans who uplift you with their energy and stories. All right, let's get into it. My name is Aisha Amiji. I am a community educator, a nonprofit founder. I founded a women's leadership nonprofit called Voices of Muslim Women. You can check it out. And I also teach policy studies and interdisciplinary expressive arts at a university called Kwantlen Polytechnic University. I live in Surrey, British Columbia. It's not too far away from Vancouver, which most of you probably know around the world. And this is the first episode of Legacy Brunch Club. So I'm so excited because I have recorded this episode so many times and every time I feel like, you know what, it can be a little bit better. So then I re-record it. And so finally I was like, that's it. Episode one. Let's get into it. So why I wanted the first episode to be me sharing my story, and I promise none of the other episodes I'm going to be talking about myself this much, but I think it's really important for me to set the tone, to be vulnerable, open, share my story, and the why. If you've read uh, Simon Sinek's book on leadership called uh, Start With Why, I think that's what it's called, essentially the whole book is about whether you're building a project, initiative, a business, nonprofit, you really need to start with why. Because you're going to go through so many ups and downs, so many opportunities to quit. Every day, life is going to give you an opportunity to quit. But if you are grounded in your why, you will be able to persevere. So I'm going to share my story of how I became the founder of Voices of Muslim Women Foundation. It's a registered charity in British Columbia, and we are a Muslim women-led organization that provides leadership training for all women and girls in BC. That being said, that is not the whole sum of my legacy story. I'm going to teach you today how to start building your legacy and how to know what that is. So I'd like to start with sharing a little bit about where I'm from and how I came to even get into teaching, community building, and leading a nonprofit. So like most people who are Indo-Fijians, we're, you know, you don't really know where you belong sometimes. I'm born and raised here, but my parents are from the Fiji Islands and so are my grandparents, but my great-grandparents are from different parts of India. My mom's side would be from North India and my dad's side would be from South India or is, for example, the states of Uttar Pradesh and Kerala. And before that, maybe the continent Africa for one side and maybe the regions of Iran for the other. Honestly, I don't really know, but I do know that growing up here, I would listen to Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X speak on the TV. My father was a 
immigrant from Fiji, and he was very passionate about racial equality. And although we weren't black, being brown-skinned Indo-Fijians meant we weren't white either. So the closest identity I had in Hollywood North would be the African-American identity. And nestled in between listening to Lauren Hill and reading about Muhammad Ali, my passion for social justice was born. After my earliest exposure to racial justice, I found women's empowerment led by brown-skinned women, mostly Pakistani and Afghan women, to be my next teacher in life. When I was a young teenager, I read this Marie Claire or Glamour magazine. I can't be sure, to be honest. And there was an article about a woman named Mukhtar Might of Mirwala, Punjab. She was a human rights activist. After being the victim of gang rape sanctioned by a tribal council ruling, she was expected to commit suicide as per local custom. But instead, she spoke out about the injustice, which was a huge surprise to everyone in Pakistan. So I just want to clarify, some people get confused. Punjab is a region. It can be in Pakistan or India. So just do yourself a favor and look into it. All right. So basically, she was a human rights activist. After being the victim of gang rape sanctioned by a tribal council ruling, she was expected to commit suicide as per local custom. But instead, she spoke out about the injustice and founded her own welfare organization. It's called Mukhtar Mai Women's Welfare Organization, and it's there to support and educate women in rural areas in Pakistan. You can look that up. Just Google Mukhtar Mai. M-U-K-H-T-A-R, and the last name is M-A-I. And shortly after hearing her story, then I learned of Malala. So then I was, you can Google Malala if you have been living under a rock. But then I was really inspired because I thought, as a first-generation Canadian, I lost all my fear in speaking out in comparison to the safety and privileges I had being born on the west coast of Canada. I decided to join every Go Girl activity and became a youth speaker for the United Nations in the, they had a Millennium Development Girls program. It became an outlet for me to begin my leadership journey as a human rights activist, women's empowerment advocate, and soon you'll see the third narrative that led me to become the founder of Voices of Muslim Women Foundation. So between racial justice, women's empowerment, I think, and the third narrative, which is standing up for Muslims or explaining Islam or, you know, combating Islamophobia, I think however you want to word it, that is the most important one for me. And that's because it was, although I was already a passionate voice for racial justice and women's rights, it was so much safer to be associated with and more socially accepted because you were going against the grain, but there was a lot of other role models who had already done it. But on 9-11, like most humans around the world, I was shocked and shook as I saw the news coverage of planes going into buildings and taking so many lives. I saw this on the morning news right before I head off to class. I was in high school then. And shortly after, from that day forward, I would realize that from being othered, I would be double negatively othered as my identity as Muslim would be synonymous in terrorists. So would be synonymous with terrorist. Literally, after being called Osama bin Laden in the hallways, and mind you, I had never known who this person was, even before 9-11, and then to be called that, and by high school boys, like, you know, older, very cute, white high school boys that look like Zach Morris, it really shook me. And, you know, then you just started to sense the general hostility towards your identity, because more than curiosity, people just judge automatically. 
And then I started to judge because I thought, hey, if this religion is so bad, do I even want to be a Muslim? Like, I don't want to be a terrorist. And furthermore, what no one knew is that behind the closed doors of a seemingly happy, hardworking immigrant average income household, there was a lot of fear and physical abuse in the name of a, let's say, God-given super, super, uh, superiority to men. I can't even say it. <laughs> At this young age, I didn't really have the sophisticated understanding and the language of separating culture and religion, mental health, personal trauma, or personal character and intergenerational trauma. But as the eldest of two daughters, I knew that I was insanely courageous and I was intelligent. I was very confident in my academic abilities. And so I set off across the pond to England to an all-girls British school to complete my British cur curriculum GCSEs and also Islamic theology training to become an Islamic jurisprudence scholar. Some of you may know this, some of you may not. The title is an alma, but I never finished the course, but I did study there for two years. And you have to also know that this was when I was around 14 years old. So it was the height of Harry Potter. And I went to a school that looked like it could have been another Hogwarts building. Among the peers and parents, I looked really happy as I, you know, went to the tuck shop. I have a happy goal, lucky energy anyways. And I would just, you know, be bopping around, going to get my chocolates. But really, I was here on a secret mission to disprove the religion and justify to myself why I was going to run away and become an atheist. Then the unexpected happened. Everything that I believed at the core of my human existence, the truth that I felt with goosebumps on my arms, was what I felt when I learned what Islam was really about. The core to all my social justice, racial justice, women's empowerment beliefs were all there in the Quran, which is our holy book, similar to the Bible or Torah, etc. And the teachings and practices of our prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. The radical honesty, compassion, justice, spirituality I had found in these teachings were so different from what I had thought and what I had seen on the news. Fast forward from 14 years old to 24, I started my master's degree in justice, law and ethics, curriculum and instruction after working as an international university recruiter. When I applied for this master's degree, I remember the specific moment where I was waddling up this large st staircase and I was pregnant with my second child. I was so determined to get into this master's program and I was so passionate about it because this was the first time after maybe a while that I had just really reignited my passion for social justice. And also, if you have children, you know that going to school, especially graduate studies with children, is very hard. I had two kids then or I was pregnant with my second. Now I have three kids and it still is very difficult. You have to really be passionate about what you're doing. And But what I went to go do my master's in, what I had wrote in my application, was that I wanted to examine the barriers for admissions into British Columbian institutions for our most marginalized populations, mainly Indigenous folks, refugees, and foster kids. However, once I was in the program, upon hearing my classmates speak, who are all senior civic administrators, educators, or community stakeholders, I realized none of them had much knowledge about the Muslim identity. And as the only Muslim student in my graduate class cohort, I then felt it was both my opportunity and responsibility to teach them. 
I switched my thesis project into the topic of Muslim misrepresentation in the media. Upon graduating, I switched departments from recruitment and advising into teaching, and I taught these community storytelling and social justice courses, and I taught them with my whole heart. The university had hosted these courses, but and they were on the university campus. They were, the students were given a university certificate, but it was really open to the high school students in the community. And there was a high school right across the street from the university. So that was when I got to uh, really get to know a lot of students that were Syrian, Somalian, and Pakistani, and really just get to know them. And then what happened was like a real surprise, a life-changing moment. It actually blew me away. I was in my mid-20s teaching, right? A mother of two then, and my students enjoyed the program so much. I'm very proud to say that I think I'm a very good teacher. And what happened is they started opening up in the program. And if you've ever taught teenagers before, you know that no one really talks in the beginning. And it takes a long time to really make them feel safe enough, comfortable enough to open up. They would start opening up and sharing daily incidents of Islamophobia happening at school. One student shared, every time he played basketball, the non-Muslim students would yell, Allahu Akbar, don't give the ball to Ahmed, he's going to blow it up. I was in disbelief. After all, I had grown up during 9-11 and been called Osama bin Laden myself. So how many years had passed and how is this worse? It just didn't make sense to me then. After hearing enough stories of these small but consistent and constant incidents, I decided you know what, there's a real problem. <laughs> Somebody should do something about this. The government, maybe the school district, uh, the mosques, maybe, maybe other Muslim organizations, someone, anyone but me. I did not want to deal <laughs> with this mess. I just, you know, I noticed it. It's a problem. Feel bad for them, feel bad for like, you know, the general community, but I don't want to get involved. That was my mindset then. And then soon after, I took my own kids to a local McDonald's and I bit into my fish fillet and I, I saw my daughter's face. I don't wear hijab and, and so I'm not visibly Muslim. I just look like, you know, any other random brown girl, woman. I'm 36. I'm a woman now. But even then in my 20s, you know, you can't really tell that I'm Muslim. So as my five-year-old kindergarten student, daughter who was a kindergarten student then, was eating her food, two groups of high school students, and mind you, this is in my neighborhood, so these kids belong to my neighborhood. They were just talking trash, just saying the most nasty things about Muslim girls. And I'm looking at my daughter, who's sitting across from me, and seeing this register in her face. And I told you, I have a master's degree in social justice. Like, I just learned about internalized oppression. And I saw it play out in my daughter's face and identity in real time. So I think most mothers can relate. There is a level of passion and intensity reserved somewhere inside of you that when something threatens your child, in that moment, the mama bear in you comes out. And that's like, that was the moment, you know, there's not many moments in my life I feel like this, but it was this like moment where I felt like there was a direct connection to the heavens and understanding that this was for me. And that's why and how I gained the focus, the courage, and the purpose to be the founder of Voices of Muslim Women Foundation, the face of Muslim women leadership in Vancouver, Canada. Over the seven years since I started the nonprofit, it has grown into a registered charity, a Muslim woman-led organization that empowers all women and girls to become connected and informed leaders through educational and professional development opportunities. And I'm very proud of 
it's an amazing ex- and a powerful life-changing experience to grow yourself but then like individually but then also to because you keep showing up at the same events throughout this many years with a similar crowd that changes a little bit but you all grow together so you're growing your community collectively as well right and so it's a very collective growth and that's really powerful however it has also been seven years of a lot of challenges it has been very difficult And what has kept me going through all of the failures and difficult moments in these years is the deep conviction within me that this is my service to the world. I remember that moment in my childhood where no one else was present but me. And the reason I share this vulnerable moment in my past is because this is where it grounds me. Faith is so important. And so this moment relates back to my personal faith. And so, yeah, I guess I'll I'll share it. (laughs) When I was a child, there was a lot of abuse in my household. And I watched this movie called A Little Princess or, yeah, I think it was called A Little Princess. And so the little girl was in a rough time and she was all alone. And so she used to use chalk and she lived in this like attic. It was kind of like a cinderella story. And uh, she would draw this circle around her and use her imagination that she was protected and happy when she was in the circle and nothing could really touch her. So I used to do something similar. And one night, I prayed and like no one was there except for me, right? So this was my, you know, prayer to God and my promise that if God kept me and my sister and my mom safe and, you know, we made it through this, one day when we were okay, I would give back to other women and girls to help them. And so in the toughest of times, I realized how much privilege I have, how I have been granted everything I could have ever dreamed of, every blessing. and then I realized, you know what, I have an obligation to keep my promise. And I want to. So then I gained the courage to keep going and the faith that there, even though I can't see the other side of whichever hurdle it is, I will get through it. Just don't stop. Don't quit. It's, you know, it was a a deeply spiritual commitment to myself and God. And most of the most influential humans I know, and that I admire, have often said that their conviction is anchored in faith or spirituality or some sorts, and I can see why. It has the immense power power and gravity to open doors you can't see, present miraculous opportunities that you would not otherwise be able to fathom. And most of all, when you create your legacy, there is a knowingness of self-confidence and self-belief in your God-given talents to succeed in your mission on earth. I have read the biographies of Muhammad Ali so many times, but the real life hero in my life that I met and that influenced me to build my legacy is Muhammad Shafiq, my grandfather. I was born in a house that he built himself in Surrey, British Columbia. I lived my first few years with him and then as my parents moved out into their own place, I continued to see him on a regular basis. My parents worked so much. My mother was as many of you may be able to relate, relate that immigrant who worked housekeeping plus two other jobs. I think she sold Tupperware, Avon, Regal, like you name it. She was hustling. My mom is an OG hustler. It just, she has the work, her work ethic is unparalleled. But because my parents were always working, we grew up with my grandparents. So we spent a lot of time with my grandmother 
my maternal grandmother, my maternal grandfather, and his mother. So my great grandmother. And I think that's something that's very rare. I don't know a lot of people who can say that their great grandmother loved them. My grandfather was an accountant by profession. He also served the community for many, many years. He was the longest serving treasurer for one of uh, the Muslim organizations here in BC, maybe the largest organization for Sunni Muslims in BC anyways. And more than that, more than his profession and the community work he did, why I loved and respected my grandfather so much is because he showed me what leadership is with love and light and tenderness. If I had not known him, there is a very good chance that I would think leadership is with fear. Because I had that opposite example with my father, who really instilled the fear of, of everything <laughs> in me. And my grandfather, although he was strict in some ways, he was always loving. There was never a time as a child that I feared his hand would strike across my face. And that was something I feared all the time in my own home. That I could say the wrong thing. I could make the joke at the wrong time. I could use the wrong tone. I could walk too heavily on the floor and make too much noise. I didn't even know what I was doing was wrong half the time. But I lived in fear that if I breathed the wrong way, something bad could happen to me. Or even worse, to my younger sister or my mother. And somehow it would be my fault that they would now be at the hands of my father. But my grandfather was the complete opposite. He had so much love in his heart for his children and grandchildren. And that's his legacy. He didn't approve of everything we did. And he would joke around with us and sometimes even sternly say, you know, you know, you should dress a little bit more modestly or why aren't you covering your, your hair when you're, we're doing a prayer? But he was, he had so much love that when he asked you to do something, you just actually wanted to do it because you wanted to make him proud. He was such a respectable man. And we saw him give to his family, give to his nieces and nephews. He was the eldest son out of, I think, 11 children. And we saw with how much love he would receive all of his brothers and sisters from Australia and New Zealand every time they'd come would gather at his house and you know we used to call it the White House because we'd all gather there it was the headquarters for our family and he had so much love in his leadership he fed everybody he hosted everyone and I mean to be honest my grandmother and my aunt did uh, most of the <laughs> most of the heavy lifting there but he was a very loving person it wasn't a dictatorship it was a completely different experience to see someone love his daughter so much. Someone loved his wife so much and his daughter-in-laws were just like his daughters. And so to see that growing up really impacted my leadership abilities that, you know what, one day I want to belong to a family where I can give that. I can be that light. I can be flexible. I can value people over principles sometimes. And you know that life isn't black and white. And I think his leadership was so great and his love was so great in my life that I just look to his legacy and I think, you know, it, it was so nice when he passed away in 2020 to hear from the community how much he had served others. But I think his legacy is really how he loved and led his family. He kept everyone together. 
And I think unity is a very beautiful thing because we're all so different. And not because we belong to different races or ethnicities or religions, but just even within a family, think about how many different personalities there are. And it's so important to have someone that gathers you, that that counsels you, that keeps you together even when times are tough and rough and misunderstandings happen and things are complex. And I'm so lucky to grow up with a grandfather who was right there in front of me living out his legacy, building his legacy. And now that is his legacy. I can tell you I talked to all of my cousins and we were all at his funeral. We all prayed together, cried together. We mourned his loss. I mean, I think I cried more than everyone because I'm such a crybaby. I think uh, I'm probably going to cry on the podcast. So just warning for everyone, if you don't like emotional people, this might not be the podcast for you because I wear my heart on my sleeve and uh, I cry often. I do. And so, but to be held by my cousins who are all different ages and different personalities, but he brought so much unity and love to us. And I think that's the leadership I aspire to. And that's the legacy that I want to continue and carry on to keep my family grounded, to serve my community and to excel in my profession. Don't even get me started on how much he loved accounting. The man loved his profession. He was probably more worried about his clients' books than any of his clients ever. He would call them all the time. He did accounting into his 80s, even after everyone told him, like, you have to stop now. Like, everyone will find another accountant. And he would somehow find a way to help people with their books, family members, grandchildren. And but if you saw the love that he did it with, it would just warm your heart. heart. And I think it's such a beautiful thing that he was here in my life for 35 or 34 years. He met all my children. He held all my babies in his arms. And he was there for me, for my mother, for my sister, and moments where we needed a father figure, leadership, someone that we could, someone that would have our back. And so I think I feel extremely privileged that I have a a real life legacy role model in my life. And I'd love to hear from you if you have someone in your life. I think it's, you know, email me. I think it's very healing to share this story. And we have so many beautiful stories like this. And we should share them and inspire each other. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful experience to hear the stories of others. And in 2020, when the pandemic happened, or I think it was in 2021, I was part of a committee that read beautiful things that British Columbians were doing all over BC to help their communities. And from small towns to big cities, it was such a beautiful experience that In the midst of a global pandemic where we were all panicked and did not know what the future would look like, British Columbians were doing what they could to help their communities. In all different ways, people were showing leadership, caring for the environment, showing up for the rights of Indigenous people, for medical and safety help, especially during a a pandemic when people didn't know what was going on or where to get help. It was such a beautiful thing to see from like soup kitchens to pop-up clinics, what people were doing. They were doing what they could and they were serving others. And I think that's just something that touches my heart so much. And before we leave today, I'm going to leave you with a quote by Muhammad Ali saying, service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. As we say goodbye today, I'll ask you for a small, specific pay it forward favor. 
buy someone a cup of tea, pay for their coffee in the lineup, or buy someone a hot chocolate, or actually make it for them if they're over at your house. Do something good today. Build your legacy one action at a time. And as we say, eat, do good, have great conversations. Legacy Brunch Club podcast is brought to you by LegacyBrunchClub.com, a global brunch for humans creating legacies. Go online to LegacyBrunchClub.com to choose a brunch, donate to a cause, and have extraordinary life-changing conversations with humans who uplift you with their energy and stories.